Well, in our text this morning, Jacob takes off on a journey. He sets off on a journey. We knew that was going to happen. Uh, he was, it's, a, it's a little journey that his mother put together with the blessing of his father uh, so that he would, he would move into what we would call really an exile. He's going to leave the land. And he sets off on one kind of a journey only to find out that he's actually on a different kind of a journey. Maybe that's happened to you. It's certainly happened to others, even those in church history. In 384 AD, Augustine moved from Rome to become a teacher in Milan. It was just a good career move for him. By his own admission, he was enjoying his sinful life in the world and had rejected his mother's teaching of Christianity. But in Milan, he became intrigued by the preaching of a fiery preacher named Ambrose. And in 386, Augustine famously says that he heard a voice. He heard a voice say to him, pick up and read. And so Augustine picked up a Bible, and he read from Paul's letter to the Romans, and he was convicted of his sin, and he became a Christian and was baptized. It's no exaggeration, really, to say that his life, and indeed the world, might not be the same. He was on one kind of a journey, a career move, and God set him on a different kind of a journey. In 1505, after receiving his law degree, Martin Luther decided that he would move from, uh, from Erfurt to Mansfield to visit his family. He was going to spend some time with family. And during the journey, he was caught in a violent storm. It was so violent that Luther believed that God was actually sending it in judgment upon him to take his life in the storm. And so he called out famously to St. Anne, the patron saint of miners. His dad owned a mining firm. And Luther cried out, help me, St. Anne, and I will become a monk. God saved Luther from the storm. So Luther put aside his law degree, all those years of study, and he became an Augustinian monk. Now, he's years away from understanding the truths of the Reformation that he would lead, but this event would set him on a spiritual trajectory that would, again, change his life and, indeed, the world that he had set aside to pursue Christianity. Things would never quite be the same after the Protestant Reformation. In 1536, after a trip to France, a young Christian and an academic named John Calvin decided that he would settle down in the German city of Strasbourg. He was looking forward to a quiet life of productive scholarship. He was a bookish guy. But the normal road that he was supposed to take and would have taken to Strasbourg was closed. So he had to take an alternate route that led him through the city of Geneva. And there he met a fiery preacher named William Farrell, who hurled curses and judgments upon John Calvin's proposed life of scholarship. Scared him, coerced him into a different aim. So against his better judgment, Calvin relented and gave most of the rest of his life to reforming the city of Geneva. Again, changing his life, and I think it's no exaggeration to say, changing the history of the world. Now change for most of our lives, doesn't really change the entire world as we know it. Not so far. But the change that does come to our lives affects us, changes us, changes our families, 
our friends, our coworkers, our classmates, the people around us. Sometimes you think you're on one kind of a journey, and God sets you on another kind of a journey. Jacob sets off on a twofold journey to flee from Esau, who wants to murder him, and also to find a wife, which would be a good idea. Only to encounter God and find that he was on an entirely different kind of journey. One that would indeed change the world. Let's pick up in Genesis chapter 28, beginning in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set upon the earth, and the top of it reached to the heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is the word of God. So on his way from Beersheba to Haran, Jacob is traveling out of the out of the land, remember he's heading out of the promised land, the same route that Abraham had traveled into the land years earlier, retracing his steps in a way. So he's going to he's going to get a wife from Rebekah's brother Laban, who are descendants of Abraham's father Terah. Jacob is also heading into a form of exile. He's exiting the promised land for a period of time. Remember the pattern, the elect of God, the exiled of God, and then the exalted of God. That's the pattern that Jacob's life is following. Jacob's moving from the election stage to the exile stage. He's being driven from the land, remember, by the murderous threats of his brother Esau. But while still in the land, on his journey, the sun sets and it's time to sleep. So Jacob selects a comfy rock for his pillow. It's 
It's, it's not a my pillow, is it? It's a stone. It doesn't sound like a good night's sleep with a rock for a pillow, but I think the rock shows us something of, of all that Jacob has lost. His family was blessed with riches. First Abraham and then Isaac. Jacob was used to sleeping in a tent, on a bed, with a real pillow. And he had food and clothing and position. Now he's on a solo journey, alone in the wilderness, sleeping on a rock, hoping Esau isn't following him. Jacob is on a physical journey, a geographical journey, one that we can plot out on a map. He's walking from point A to point B, and he'll stay at point B for Esau's cooling off period and hopefully return with a wife. That's the journey that Jacob thinks he's on when he comes to this place. But Jacob goes to sleep and he has a dream. And God gives Jacob a vision of a ladder with angels going up and down it. Maybe you've seen pictures of, of this, artwork of this. The, the word for ladder is probably better understood here as staircase. It may even be the, the, the staircase or the stairway on a, on a temple-like structure. And in verse 22, Jacob has the idea of building a house of a, a temple of his God, as if, if he ever returns to this place. And it's an interesting thing to remember the last time that we saw a stairway to heaven was when the people in Babel tried to build a tower with a staircase up, a stair-step type staircase up it. That's, that's not something man can achieve. Man can't build a tower up to God. So there's a, bit of a, there's a bit of a temple feel in this language that Moses is using in this place where Jacob encounters the presence of God. This ladder drops down from heaven and it sets upon the earth. And it's functional. Angels use this ladder. The messengers of God use this ladder to access the earth from heaven and heaven from earth to do the work of God assigned to them. So this ladder is God's initiative. This ladder is God's initiative to provide a way, as it were, to heaven. It's an opening. We would say it's a portal. And the Lord stood above and revealed himself to Jacob. The Lord speaks to Jacob in his dream, and there are no new words here. There are no new words here. Every phrase spoken by God is one that we've already heard before from just recent chapters in Genesis. And they're almost word for word. I am the God of your fathers, Abraham and Isaac. I promise to give you these things, the land on which you lie, the offspring who shall cover the earth. Your family will bless all the families of the earth. And best of all, I will be with you. You will experience the presence of God everywhere you go. Those are the promises that God makes to Jacob. And it's right about here where I want to ask you if you're getting just a little bored with the promises of God. The same promises repeated over and over and over. How many times have you patiently sat and listened to me say, land, seed, and blessing. Land, seed, and blessing. Land, seed, and blessing. Scott, we just, gosh, could we get a fresh word from you? I have a fresh word from you. Land, seed, and blessing. Land, seed, and blessing to Abraham over and over and over. Land, seed, and blessing to Isaac over and over. And now, land, seed, and blessing to Jacob. I get it. I get it. Can we move on to something new? 
Can we move on to something new and fresh? Well, Moses, who was writing Genesis under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, not yet. Not until it's repeated a few more times for you. You know, there are four things that we need to appreciate about this seemingly endless repetition of God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. First, repetition is the mother of learning, right? Repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, hear it, hear it, hear it, remember it, remember it, remember it, know it, know it, know it. Repetition is the mother of learning. So if you're saying, land, seed, and blessing, I get it, I don't need to hear it anymore, good! Then Moses is doing his job. When something is repeated in the Bible, it's because it's important for you to know it. So you need to remember land, seed, and blessing. And repetition is the way to remember it. Second, we're to see and believe that the promises of God made to Abraham are not just for Abraham. They are for Isaac as well. And not just Isaac, but for Jacob. And even Jacob's descendants, Israel. God is making promises and keeping promises, the nature of which outlive individual men. That's an amazing kind of a promise. They will be passed down generation to generation. These promises are everlasting in their nature. That's an amazing thing. Third, and even more amazing, is that God is faithful and powerful to accomplish His will, all of His promises, even when men fail. The men whom He gives the promises to, even when they fail. Abraham's sinfulness, Isaac's sinfulness, Jacob's sinfulness will not stop the promises of God from being fulfilled in their lives and in the lives of their offspring. Don't be Esau, unconcerned and uninterested in the promises of God. By faith in Jesus Christ, these promises are yours. They're ours. You will not go aboard of these promises if you understand how they apply to you. Land, when the days of your sojourning in this exile upon this earth come to an end, Jesus will take you to the promised land. Are you looking for that? Seed. All who believe in Christ by faith are children of Abraham, children of the promise, children of God. Because Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the seed of the woman, who crushed the serpent's head on the cross, defeating your enemies of sin, death, and the devil. That means something to you. Blessing. So it is Jesus who rose from the dead and who blesses all who believe in him with eternal life. And we, his church, bless all the peoples of the earth by proclaiming this gospel of salvation to them. And he is gathering people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, numerous as the dust of the earth, and gathering them around his throne to worship him and fill the earth with God's glory. Not boring. Exciting. Glorious. God comes to Jacob and tells him the good news of his grace. Jacob, look at all the good that I can do for you. And they're just the same old promises that Jacob has heard before. 
the blessing that he has schemed all of his life to grasp, here Jacob lies alone in the wilderness on his way to exile. God tells Jacob, you can't outrun my protection. He's fleeing Esau. He tells Jacob, you can't out-travel my provision. I'm going to give you these things. And you can't escape my promises, even if you try. Because, fourth reason, I will be with you. I will be with you. This is God's great overarching promise over all the other promises. Jacob is in the presence of God and will be from now on. That's how Jacob's journey is changed. Jacob is no longer journeying for his own purposes. From now on, Jacob is journeying for God's purposes. God says, I will be with you, and I will give you these things. And how does Jacob respond? Well, Moses has been emphasizing this place all along for a reason. Verse 10, Jacob came to a certain place. Verse 11, Jacob lay down in that place. Here, Jacob wakes up afraid and exclaims, the Lord's in this place. Moses wants us to feel, along with Jacob, that God is present. In this very place, God is present. Jacob's understanding of God is a little two-dimensional here. At first, it's as if he's worried that he might be trespassing. I didn't know this was God's place. I just woke up. I didn't know. Kind of like Goldilocks in the wrong bed. Perhaps Jacob thought that God's place was back in Beersheba with Isaac and Rebekah the one who came before him. Maybe, maybe, he's, maybe he's back there. Not out here in the wilderness. Not where Jacob has run to flee from the consequences of his sin. Which is kind of natural. We're not conscious of God's presence when we sin. We're not conscious of God's presence when we're fleeing from the consequences of our sin. Or when we find ourselves alone with nothing but a rock for a pillow. Jacob's afraid. But his fear in finding himself in God's place is a, it's sort of a mixture of terror and adoration at the same time. He says, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. See, the vision of the ladder causes Jacob to call this place a gate of heaven. Here's the, here's the portal, here's the opening, here's the way. It's an access point. And the Lord's presence in speaking to him causes him to call this place the house of God. God is present here in his house. The truth is that God's house, his presence, and God's gate, access to God, are always together. And we know that they're everywhere. We can access God anywhere and everywhere. Jacob doesn't know God well, but he's going to. His next actions are actually kind of encouraging. He sets up his rock pillow as a rock pillar, a column, if you would. It's a testimony to this being the place where God is present. And Jacob worships by offering a gift, a sacrifice of oil poured out on the, on the pillar. He's anointing the stone pillar, setting that place apart from all other places as a place where he met God. And then he names the place Bethel, which means God's house. 
Moses locates this ancient city of Luz for his readers, but from now on it's going to be known as Bethel. Then Jacob makes his own vow to God, which is good. But at the same time, it's, uh, it's a little less than we would hope for. It's good. It's not quite what we'd hope for. Let me pick up in verse 20. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, set it up for a pillar, and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in his way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and nothing and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for the pillar shall be God's house, and of all that you give to me, I will give a full tenth to you. Each point of Jacob's vow addresses a specific point in God's promises, which is good. Jacob is paying attention. He's taking this seriously. But Jacob's vow is in the form of an if-then statement. Now, it's not a solid of a statement of rock-solid faith. It's got this kind of if-then form to it. It's a little more along the lines of, well, you know, if you prove yourself reliable, then yes, you will be my God. It's got, it's got a little of that feel to it, just because of the form in which he gives it. Nonetheless, it's a good start. God is clearly working on Jacob. Even though it's an if-then statement, I don't want you to read it as an entirely skeptical statement. It's, it's a hopeful vow. Jacob is not utterly disbelieving God. He's met him. He's heard him. But, the Lord, but Jacob does not yet trust God that he can do all these amazing things for him. But alone and fearful in his exile, Jacob wants God to be with him and wants God to help him. Jacob is God's elect, but Jacob is still unfit at this point. But God is still merciful at this point. Before Jacob made any vow at all, God promised Jacob that he will be his God and he will give him these things. What is glorious about the Bible's repetition is that God is always gracious, gracious, gracious. God is always merciful, merciful, merciful. Genesis is filled with our heroes. That's who we're reading about. Yes, their names are listed in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. These are the heroes of the faith that we're reading about. And all of them are sinners. Adam the sinner. Noah the sinner. Abraham the sinner. Isaac the sinner, and Jacob the sinner. The, rabbi, the, the Bible repeats that man is sinful. Only the names change. And the Bible repeats that God never changes. God is merciful to sinners. That's why repetition matters. Because the truth of our repeated sin is that it can be met by God's repeated grace. You know, we can all relate to Jacob here, if we would just try for a moment. We are, more often than we care to admit, in flight because of our sin. We want, more often than not, for God to change our circumstances 
rather than for God to change us in our circumstances. The biggest obstacle to God's plan is not the sinfulness of this fallen world. The biggest obstacle to God's plan in this world is us. We think that God is most interested in using us to change the world when what God is most interested in is using the world to change us. Here are your circumstances. Worship me. Here are your circumstances. Thank me. Here are your circumstances. Become like my son. That's what God is interested in. Jacob is a shrewd and scheming man, but God's kindness will lead him to repentance. Jacob is a selfish, self-serving man, but God's grace will make him a thankful man. Jacob is on a different journey than the one he started out on. God has reoriented Jacob's purpose. He will walk with God's purpose and promises. Though Jacob is not yet transformed, God will transform him. If you will yield to God's purposes, if you will believe in God's promises, He will transform you. You have not always been obedient to God's will. But God has always been gracious. Maybe today is the day that you realize you're on a different journey than the one you first set out on. Maybe you didn't realize that God is in this place. That you have access to God through His Word, by His Spirit, who is present. Repent and find God's grace and mercy and love. Maybe your journey with God is being transformed this very morning. From mere outward service to true heart and character transformation. Maybe you've been on an if-then journey with God. Mm, it's a good start. An if-then journey with God. Holding back. Holding back your all-in vow. Measured in your devotion. Careful in your commitment, just like Jacob. God is not holding anything back from you. Even now, he's working through his word and his spirit to change you in this very moment, on the inside where you can't see it, to make you exactly like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we need to get serious about being like Christ. That's the journey we need to get on. Moses has written this so that we would see God's spoken promises and the vision of the latter together. That's how we'll understand them. They're here together in this story because we're supposed to see them and understand them together. How is the Lord going to create this access point between the earthly realm where we live in sin and the heavenly realm where he dwells in holiness. How is he going to do that? Now turn with me to John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, Jesus is gathering his disciples. We're going to focus on verse 51, but I, I want to give you the context by beginning in verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him. And said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, 
when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to Nathanael, Truly, truly, listen, listen. I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God descending and ascending on the Son of Man. That's what you'll see, Nathaniel. You see, Jesus claims this vision of the latter for himself. We don't have to wonder. He is the gateway to heaven. God gives his angels, his messengers, his workers an assignment. They go down the ladder, and when they complete their assignment, they go back up the ladder and they report to God. God gave Jesus, his son, an assignment. A work to do. To crush the serpent's head. Nathaniel would see Jesus' sin-atoning death on the cross and his life-giving resurrection from the dead and his glorious ascension into heaven. You see, the staircase has come to men. It's come to you this morning. The Tower of Babel was a failure. Men cannot build their own way up to God. What man could not do, God did by sending Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying to Nathaniel, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Behold, no longer a vision, but the actual saving work of God by his promised Savior, Jesus Christ. The seed of the woman, the promise of Abraham, the true Israel. You cannot build or buy a stairway to heaven. But God has sent one down from heaven for you by his grace. And you may enter the presence of God by faith in that staircase who is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who says so. Jesus is God's blessing to us. He's he's God with us. When he ascended to God's heavenly temple, he sent his Holy Spirit to dwell within his people. Surely the Lord is in this place. He is building up his church as a temple, the household of God. There's a flavor in the temple language in Jacob's encounter with God. Moses emphasizes this place, the gate of access and the house of presence. The name Bethel, which means house of God, and the stone pillar which Jacob vows to build into a house of God if he returns. And just after Jacob claims to be the latter, Jesus claims to be the latter in chapter 1 of John, in chapter 2 of John, Jesus claims to be the temple. As he cleanses the temple by driving out the money changers, he presents himself as the fulfillment of the temple when he says, destroy this temple, by which he meant his body, and in three days I will raise it up, which he did at the resurrection. Jesus is not only the gateway to God. He is the cornerstone of the temple of God. Jesus is saying, where I am, the Lord is in your midst. Jesus is the holy presence of God. Maybe the journey you thought you were on needs a few adjustments this morning. Maybe you've realized that you've been on an if-then journey with God. 
But Christ is calling you to an all-in journey. You need to take up your cross and follow Him. Maybe you've been committed to a solo journey. But Christ is calling you to commit to His body, the local church. To love and give and serve and worship with these brethren in this place. Maybe this morning you understand for the very first time that what you have been experiencing in this life has not been biblical Christianity, has not been true salvation. It's been lacking the zeal and the joy that the Bible promises because you've been missing the presence of Christ that the Bible promises. Yield to God's promises. Change your purpose. Come and know God and walk in Christ. He is the way and the truth and the life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and for your promises. We thank you for the life that you give and the new life that you give us in Christ. We thank you that these promises which those who have saving faith in Christ enjoy even now, are not closed promises, but open promises. So that anyone who hears and believes might be children of the promise, blessed by Christ, blessed by God, in this life now and the next to come. We give you our thanks. We pledge, we vow to be all in as individuals and as the body of Christ in this place. We ask that you would bless us. More importantly, that you might make us a blessing to the people around us. It's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.